you are listening to Single Service. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Service is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Tyler Sumala is a serial learner obsessed with helping architects optimize all things business development, sales, marketing, and operations. Before transitioning into business development and monograph, Tyler worked in large and small architecture offices and also ran his own architectural design studio for two and a half years. He holds a BS in architecture from the University of Michigan and an MARC from Princeton University. Tyler is currently creating a community of architects at tylertactics.com, where he sends one quick and powerful tactic to help architects attract high-quality clients every Sunday morning. So thank you very much, Tyler, for being on the show. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I appreciate the invitation. I'm happy to, uh, to chat. So tell us who you are and what you do in your own words in three sentences or less. Okay, three sentences or less, keeping it keeping it short, the ultimate business development goal, right? Um, at Monograph, I work with firms um, to help them improve their uh, business operations and project management processes. Um, and at Tyler Tactics, I uh, help bring, let's say, outside tactics and other um, resources um, to the surface for architects to use and also improve their um, business development and sales processes. So you're trained as an architect, as I just mentioned. Um, what made you go away from the traditional practice of architecture and engage into more business development um, endeavors? Um, I had felt I felt a little bit like I don't have I don't have a ton of patience, to be honest, with like trying things. So. I had felt like I had tried a lot of different versions of professional practice um, and hadn't really found fulfillment through it. So I had worked at a large firm. I had worked at a small firm. I had ran my own studio for a little bit um, and, and just honestly wasn't, I just wasn't feeling fulfilled in the process. So I started looking for other things that would still allow me to utilize my background in architecture, um, but just in a different way. Um, and that's where I was really thankful to, to come across Monograph. That makes sense. So as I mentioned earlier, the topic for today is how to attract high quality clients. Why do you think that's important? Well, it's already hard enough to be an architect, right? Um, it's hard enough to find clients. But when you do, ideally, you want to work with ones that that work well with you and that respect you and um, want to work with you and have the budget and the vision that that you want as well. So you kind of want those shared values um, because as we've all experienced at some point or another, uh, working with the opposite of that is, I'd say, 10 times more exhausting um, and can really, you know, it can really have a negative impact on morale for you and as well as your team. Yeah, I think we've all been there. We know what that's like. 
So you've already hinted at what a high quality client is, but do you do you want to define it a little more uh, clearly for our audience? Sure. Yeah. So I think high quality clients are are a few different things, right? So they're clients that that you just enjoy working with, right? So they're not someone that that you're gonna that you feel like you have to take a deep breath with every time you meet with them or or um, before you see them. Um, they're clients that pay on time. They're clients that understand budgets and costs. Um, and aren't going to grill you every time you send them an invoice, right? Um, they're people that trust and respect you. Um, and they're people that return to you for repeat work or at least advocate for you um, for others to work with you as well. All right. That's a very great and succinct definition. I like it. Um, so why would you say high quality clients is particularly relevant for people in the architecture and design industry? Uh, I think I hinted this a little bit like at the beginning, but just, I mean, architecture is already hard enough, right? So I think one of the biggest challenges that architects face is doing things that are unrelated to design. Um, 95% of architects um, care most about design um, and business, um, client relations, um, business development, sales. That's kind of like, that's like that, Let's mix that together in the last five percent at most, and maybe one percent for for the for the average architect. Yeah. So the you icky want bucket they don't want to touch. Right? right. It's the icky bucket they don't want to touch. And so I mean, and again, most of the time, architects aren't starting a firm, or leaders aren't in a firm because they love business. They're in it because they love design. They love they love architecture and things like that. So um, I think it's important to have high quality clients so that you can still maintain as much of your focus on the things that you want as possible and not feel weighed down by the business side of things if you don't want to feel weighed down by those. Um, so why do you think so many architecture firms are challenged with their business development efforts? And that's kind of, I'm putting my own bias into that question because that's something I've seen over and over and over. Um, and we've kind of touched on the idea that it's kind of, too far removed from design is something most architects don't like. So there's kind of that unfamiliar unfamiliarity and prob probably also lack of training. But is there anything else that you've seen specifically in in what you do with monograph and tile tactics that maybe you want to speak to? Yeah, I think there's there's this funny um, like inverse relationship between architects and business, whereby uh, an architect, like the normal, the normal ladder of working at a firm, for example, right? You might be intern, and then your designer, and then your architect, then your associate, then your maybe partner or or um, principal or something, something along those lines. Owner. As you yeah. move up, you're given more and more business responsibilities, but you're you're not moving up because most of the time, at least, most of the time, you're not moving up because you're good at business. You're moving up because you're good at design or something or maybe managing a team or something like that you're you're moving up because of something else that's unrelated to the new responsibilities that you're getting in that new position mm -hmm. so i think i think that's like that's one that's one source of the issue right you're, you're beginning to elevate people that are good at one thing and you're giving them responsibilities for something that they have, have absolutely zero interest or knowledge in uh or skills in. so so that's a problem um that i think a lot of firms aren't tackling um mm -hmm. And I think the other one is just not not taking the necessary time um, to improve skills that are necessary for business. I mean, 
it just, it takes some time outside. You have to take time outside of design. You have to take time outside of normal architecture. You have to explore, you know, uh, other resources and other industries a little bit and allow yourself to learn from them in order to improve uh, your business as well. Yeah, and it's interesting what you just said because um, you're you're hundred percent right. As you get promoted and progress in the hierarchy, you do it generally because of your talent in design or talent in managing projects or something related yeah. to the architecture itself. But the fur the further up you move, the more removed you are from those responsibilities. And I think that's an issue that a lot of people recognize, but as you said, not few people do anything about. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any examples of firms that have managed um their staff transitions into the, the higher levels of hierarchy well? Um, not specific example. I think it's, it's like one of these things that are just, it's, it's like just being realized and recognized. Right. So usually, at least when I'm speaking to firms, they're not coming to me because things are hunky dory. Um, you know, it's, it's the opposite. It's because they're, it's because they're facing struggles of some kind. I will say that I think there's firms that are taking steps in that direction to make it, um, to maybe make it easier to identify people that would be better in those positions, mm-hmm. you know, for example, like increasing, increasing transparency across the firm, I think is one of those things that can make a big difference in that because you're giving everyone in the firm, um, the ability to understand how the business works. And I think naturally what's going to happen from that is the people that are interested in the business side of things or whatever those specific parts of the business are, are going to emerge, um, and then maybe you can also, you know, that's where you can give them the responsibilities that are related to their interests and passions rather than kind of forcing them upon um, other people. Yeah. And I, I'm going to name names because there's one great example like that comes to mind. And I'm not going to say anything bad, but <laughs> I did an internship at SOM years and years ago. And I was always impressed to this day. I'm still impressed by how they managed uh, the business aspect of architecture and the design um, almost separately, like working hand in hand, but they're completely separate uh, people and responsibilities within the firm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that they're the ones doing that so well, because they've been around for almost 90 years now. Yeah. Um, And I believe that's one of the reasons why they've been so successful for so long throughout so many generations of leaders. Um, I'm wondering what that model looks like in the f- more of a in the 21st century firm, um, and n- not so much with firms that have been around for a long time. So uh, that's kind of an interesting thought. I mean, I think you just have to be. So I'd say that you know the the 20 the 21st century architecture firm is smaller. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's not there's there's only a handful of those international firms that compete with SOM. You know, maybe there's maybe ten or fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we ran the numbers like early on at Monograph, and it's something like don't don't quote me on this for sure, but it's something like eighty percent of architecture firms are um, ten people or less. Um, yeah. And so I think like a majority huge. of that are single person firms. Right. Yeah, and the majority yeah. of that are, are single person firms. Right. So. In that sense, I think you really, if you're going to at least be on the leadership side of one of those smaller firms, you do have to be a generalist. Um, And architects are already generalists in things that are related to architecture. You know, we're good at design. We're good at um, technical things. We're good at 
problem um, solving, yeah, problem solving, you know, things like that um, that I think also translate into into the business side of things. But you do have to be able to um, manage design at the same time that you're managing your business. That's the same time that you're um, growing your pipeline um, mm-hmm. and adding backlog to your projects. Um, I think without that, it's just it's not impossible. It's just going to be it's just going to be a lot more painful ride in my opinion. Yeah, that makes sense. So one of the things that I've, um, I've noticed is a struggle for a lot of architecture and design firms is to understand the difference between marketing sales, communications and business development. So I have my own idea what those, all those are, but can you uh, give us your own understanding and definition of those? Yeah. This is one of these, um, I actually have, I feel like I have this conversation like once a week with someone about, about what these things are. I think everyone has a different definition, Mm -hmm. um, which is, I don't know if it's a problem or if it's just kind of a funny quirk of, of the industry. So what I would, I would define a business development as any, it's kind of like any action taken to bring clients into your firm. And by that, I would say that business development is the category and that marketing, sales, and, and communication are all like subcategories of that. They're mm-hmm. all parts that like work towards that. That's at least how I group it in my in Well, my mind. that's my understanding as well. So yeah. I think there's something to it for sure. Yeah. What about, so what is the distinction um, to you between marketing, sales, and comms? Uh, I think marketing is about nurturing and educating your audience. Um, sales is about turning that audience into clients and customers mm-hmm. um, communications is about like the, like how you're doing that. It's kind of like the, the process and the, the tactics of enacting those transitions. Yeah. I have pretty much the same understanding. So it looks like we're on the same page. Um, I, and one thing that I see a lot and I'm sure you have as well, is that a lot of people consider um, proposal development proposal management and development and submission is part of marketing and i don't think it is or should be what's your take on that yeah i have seen i have seen that i've that's like such it's part of a longer discussion about like how you should be handling proposals in your firm um so what what (laughs) what uh department it's in you know in, in marketing is obviously one thing um, I think another thing is like how you introduce that proposal, which mm-hmm. the vast majority of firms are doing that usually through an email, um, which I don't think should ever happen. Um, I mean, I think you should send it through an email after you've met with the client, either face-to-face or on a video call Thank and walk you. them through that proposal. Thank you. Um, yes. So don't like if you're, if you're just sending proposals to your clients, I think that's one of the worst, lowest value things you can do especially if you put a ton of time into that proposal, you should be walking them through that proposal, making like reiterating the fact that you understand their challenges and their pains and that you are the right solution for them before you ever hand that proposal over to them for them to read themselves. Yeah. I took on a a hard policy of never sending a proposal without first reviewing with the clients. Yeah. So at the very least, what ends up happening is we review it together on zoom. Yeah. Looking at the screen at the same time. Yeah. And then I send it by email, but you're, you're right. I think the just emailing it is one of the lowest value things because you, you, you robbing yourself of the opportunity to handle objections, uh, question yeah. to answer questions 
And frankly, to close the deal, because you should be asking the question, are you ready to go ahead once you're done presenting your proposal? And a lot of the time they'll say, no, we need to think about it, which yeah, is a fair answer. Yeah. But uh, at least every time a client is ready to go, you're seizing that opportunity. And if yeah. you just send an email, yeah, you're just that. I think that probability of getting a job just drastically drops down. It, so. it, it drops down. I think it's also like there's a there's a fear. Yeah, there's a fear of not being able to handle objections, right? Um, uh, that people don't want to do. I think there's also a misunderstanding that you know the clients are going to make whatever decision they're going to make, and we're just throwing our hat in and hoping that they choose us. Like that. There's. I think there's there's like this misunderstanding that there's a lack of influence that you can have on that client's decision from from engaging mm -hmm. with them more intentionally. Yeah, and that's why I think I'd love to see more um, people taking on sales training and, and becoming good at sales because that's where you're going to shine as an architect because a lot of them really don't do it very well. Yeah. Uh, and it's a broad generalization, obviously, but I think there's a lot to it. Um so you've talked to, from what you told me, more than 1,000 architects over the last years. So yeah. first of all, I'm just so curious. You have to tell me what's the <laughs> what made that happen. And second, what are some of the things that you've learned out of that? Yeah. Well, if you, I mean, as you know, if, in any sales or business development role, um, you're worth as, as much as like the conversations that you're having. So um, when you're in that role, I mean, that's my primary my primary responsibility at, at Monograph is to have conversations with architects. So that might be um, that might be a cold call, uh, that might be a, a an inbound call based on um, a question that they had. It might be a discovery call. It could be, you know, a, a demo that I'm doing of the platform. So that's that's usually the nature of those conversations, and they're lasting anywhere from you know five minutes to an hour um, long. You know, about the challenges that they're having in their practice and things that are going on with that. So that's, the, so that's the context of those conversations. Mm -hmm. What I think I underestimated about that was the, the pulse and understanding of that, that would give me on the industry. I don't think I really like thought through that when I was, when I was taking on this role at monograph and it's been a really nice kind of cherry on top to this, to this kind of new job and new career that I really love and enjoy, but just having a deeper understanding of the industry itself and the challenges that architects are facing, um, they're relatively universal. They're, most of these challenges are the same, but just from talking to a thousand architects, there's definitely a few things that stand out. I mean, one is just um, a lack of a lack of organization and a lack of tracking or or measuring that's happening on the business side. So that could mean like you know just challenges with tracking time, um, tracking budget, and uh, and also going back to you know understanding why someone spent you know more time on the project or why we ran over on this specific phase of the project so that you can then improve it. So a lot of firms are in this um, reactive state rather than proactive state where things are happening and then they have to catch up later on and try to you know do discovery to find out what's what's going on rather than being proactive about whatever these challenges are and what what might come up. Um, and I think the other challenge that we've already, you know, we've already began talking about is that the majority of architects don't really want to focus on business. Um, they don't really want to focus on money. It's like money is important, but it's not. Um, uh, which you know is, I think, something that just hurts hurts in the long run. It's hard to you don't have to. It doesn't money profit doesn't have to be your primary driver. It should. I don't think it should be. You know, um, necessarily. But 
you need to think about it in some context. It needs to be considered um, in order for you to run a successful business and, you know, a sustainable business for yourself and for your employees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's many ways to set up a business where profit is not the main motivator, as you said, you know, there's like legal structures that allow you to do that. But regardless, you do need to be a good manager of money and budgets and costs because, you're going to have to deal with those things one way or another. You know, you're going to have mm -hmm. staff, or if you don't have staff, you're going to have contractors, you're going to have bills to pay, you're going to have uh, to manage cash flow. So it's absolutely and completely inevitable. Yeah. Um, the, the state of the majority of the firms that I talk to, and I don't blame them. I mean, I'm happy to to chat with these firms because at least they're, they're recognizing that there's an issue and they're trying to, they're trying to like, they recognize that they need to change something. Mm -hmm. But the state of the majority of the firms that I'm speaking to are that they, you know, they're generally looking at their bank balance at the end of the month and understanding, okay, good. We have, we have more money than we spent. So that's good. Yeah. Um, they're looking at their project budgets at like usually once a month to understand how did we go over or did we go under budget? So they're finding that out at the end of the month um, as well. And it's just, I think that's a, that's a really tough that's a tough practice to, man to maintain um, over the long run. It's really tough to scale that. It's really tough to grow and, and iterate and improve upon that. Yeah, and I think if you want to do that, you have to uh, have the tools. And like a spreadsheet mm -hmm. is probably no longer sufficient after a while. Yeah, yeah. After so, a certain size, um, it gets harder. And speaking of of um, money management, I've discovered this method a couple of years ago called uh, profit firsts. It's, a, mm. it's an entrepreneur who like created it and and developed it, developed it, and uh, it's even if it's not implemented as part of the business, I think it's a great method to understand how money works and how it should be managed. Um, and I've implemented it myself in my own business, and it's it, it is a game changer because you put you basically put your money. It's the envelope method, right? You put your money in buckets. Yeah, and then some of those buckets are reserved for certain things like taxes and payroll and and uh, sales tax and whatever else, and then you don't touch those. Uh, and then there's expenses buckets, and there's also it's called profit first because one of the first things they have you do is to pay yourself. Yeah, and so you're forced yeah. to th if you don't if you can't pay yourself or you don't make enough money to pay yourself, then you're forced to think in ways of. Okay, so how do I make enough money so I can pay myself and still meet all my bills and, and costs? And then, so it's a very interesting exercise in general. Yeah, that's a great one. I mean, it's also a really good personal finance model. Like when you get your paycheck, you should pay yourself first, meaning like don't go and pay bills right away. Like don't go and pay bills. Don't think about what you should buy. Like go and put that money into an investment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, before you have a chance to spend it. And so you've been developing the Tyler Tactics uh, in actively growing that on LinkedIn. Uh, what are some of the things that you've learned from that? Uh, I just started that this past month. So that's more of like the culmination of being active on LinkedIn this past year, um, mm -hmm. getting an understanding of the challenges that architects are having. Um, I myself, like it didn't take me that long in my business development role at Monograph to realize Wow, I didn't really know a whole lot about business development when I was when I was running my own little studio. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if I'm the only one. And then having more and more conversations, um, being more vocal about these challenges on LinkedIn, uh, running polls, understanding like what challenges my audience is facing. Um, that's that's really how Tyler Tactics um, came to be. 
And so uh, that's just one that's just one newsletter that I'm posting each week that's really um, focused on short, like actionable steps you can take um, towards a specific tactic that will help you improve your business development process, get you more of those high quality clients, help you talk to your clients better and, and just make like, you know, actionable changes that will have a, a marked improvement on your firm. And so speaking of actionable changes, what are some of those easy changes that firms could make to attract higher quality clients? So I think there's there's a few things that they can do, right? So one is just tracking your pipeline. Like, is there are are you tracking your pipeline in any way? Do you have anything? And I think that's where it's you know it's okay if your starting line here is a spreadsheet of some kind, but just understanding you know the different phases of your pipeline, the qualification process, the proposal process, the mm-hmm. the closing, the decision making process, understanding you know how many people or clients you have in each of those buckets is really important to understand at any given time. And also just getting an understanding of, you know, what's your win rate for the amount of proposals that you're, that you're writing. Um, You know, I'm a huge proponent of, you have to measure something to improve it. If you're not measuring it, it's going to be really difficult to make changes to this. And I think most firms are finding themselves in a state where they're not measuring some of these things where if they did it would it would just have a massive impact it would give this it 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 gives them visibility and it has a massive impact on their firm so one is just measuring measuring and tracking your pipeline um the second one is diversifying that pipeline right so mm-hmm. usually the you know we're waiting for inbound um inbound things to happen meaning like those are those are clients that are coming to you either based on your website or from a referral. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the easiest ones to win, but they're also, and they're probably the highest amount of, of like um, clients that you're getting, mm-hmm. um, but they shouldn't be your only one. So you should diversify. You should definitely be doing outbound efforts. You should be reaching out to potential clients, um, going to events where potential clients will be, um, mm-hmm. cold calling potential clients, like just trying to develop those new relationships on a consistent basis, um, whether that's weekly, you know, spending time doing these things and, and forming new relationships, that's really important so that new projects can come from that. Um, and the other one is just nurturing and educating, you know, those people that you're bringing in, whether that's through a newsletter or something like that, um, just to keep your firm and yourself top of mind to them. Um, mm. those are things that can make a big difference. The last one is just improve your communication skills, you know, improve, improve your sales skills. There's small things you can do. I mean, read a book, um, read a, read a book that's focused on sales, not like focused on architecture or something like that. Um, focused on sales, focused on business development or marketing. Um, I can tell you right now after talking to, and I'm not talking to, you know, I'm not talking to interns or, or like middle middle people like in firms, I'm talking to firm leaders and principals um, and owners. And I can tell you that if you are someone that is focusing on marketing, if you are someone that is focusing on sales, and if you are someone that is focusing on business development in a leadership position in a firm, you are for sure among the top 5% um, of your firm. And you have a huge, huge um, opportunity to differentiate yourself from your competition. Mm -hmm. What are some of the, maybe the top two or three uh, sales and business development books that you've read in the last couple of years? Oh, another, well, one good one is never split the difference right by um, Chris Voss. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just really good for understanding how to negotiate and how to talk about money. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really important one. Another that's one that I the, really uh, hostage negotiator, right? Yeah, he's the yeah. hot. He's the hostage negotiator. There's really good, um, you know, and everything you, everything that you read, right? You're always kind of 
reformulating it to relate to how you do it. So it's not like every book is going, to, everything you read is going to be completely relatable to architecture, but it really does give you, I think um, it's like a, it's just adding tools to your toolkit mm-hmm. to understanding like how you can respond to specific situations and, and just improve the conversation. So that's one. Another one that I actually really like is um hundred million dollar offer by Alex Hormozzi. Um, I don't know if you've ever read that. It's a really short no. book. It's not, it's not long at all. You said um, the hundred million dollar offer? hundred million dollar offer, I think is what mm-hmm. it's called. Um, and it's a it's a short read, but it's so powerful. And I think it's really, it's really relatable. So he he primarily works with like SaaS companies and technology companies and helping mm-hmm. them improve the offer that they're making, or even small businesses helping them improve the offer that they're making. Um, using different types of tactics to really like hone in on what that ideal client is, mm-hmm. um, different things that you can do, not only to increase your value, like increase your fee, um, but also make it so that you're the only one that's offering something that unique and that, and that's that customized to your ideal client profile. So, you know, I think those are the things that you can do to like increase your fees. You really have to, rather than racing to the bottom and trying to figure out how you can compete on your fee, you want to be be you know moving in the opposite direction um going upstream and understanding what you need to do in order to just put yourself at a level that's completely different than what anyone else is doing yeah and i'm so glad you mentioned that because most architects think of the 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 business as a race to the bottom it's like oh i have to get this job and have to outcompete with lower fees everybody else and the conversation around value although it's becoming a bit more prevalent now is still too way too rare in my opinion and and i'm going to ask you your opinion my opinion is that way too many people are focused on um kind of internal capacity capabilities and their ability to design great projects but they're never um phrasing what they can do for their clients in terms of the value added to their clients and one example i use all the time because it's very easy to understand it's very telling i have a friend who's um a contractor and he once suggested to a client to shore up the basement um so spend about a hundred thousand dollars extra to shore up the basement and have i think it was 12 foot ceilings in the basement and a mm-hmm. first floor that was at grade meaning wheelchair accessible yeah instead of the usual first two or three steps to go up to right. the main floor and then go down to the basement right and the the house i believe was assessed as being about $350,000 more valuable as a result of that $100,000 mm-hmm. investment. And to me, that's where the value resides. So as a contractor, he understood the value of his work and he was able to make the right recommendation to the client. After that, you have to convince the client to spend more money. But if they can, they'll come out on the other side to benefit from it. And I think too few architects understand that that's truly where their value reside. And I'm going to add to that uh, the fact that every, almost every one of them wants to be a generalist. They want to be able to do everything. And I've been saying for years now, if you decided to be the architect who's the, the top coffee shop designer in the world, yeah, you will get clients paying you hand over fist for your designs because you will have that level of expertise and you'll be able to focus on developing that one typology instead of being a generalist in designing a house, a cafe, a restaurant, an office, a medical facility, and never be able to really drill down to what makes one typology 
um, what it is and being be, becoming the one expert at it. And they're terrified of doing that. Every one of them, they 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 won't say it in public, but on behind closed doors, they're like, <laughs> they say no, it in public I can't do post. that. <laughs> I can't do yeah. that because I'm going to lose all my business. Like, And they don't understand that's where the true value resides for them. So what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of, I think, uh, fear that just results in a lack of understanding of how like markets work um, mm-hmm. around around architects. I think I I can I understand the resistance to want to niche down, um, right? Because you want to be open, you want to take on other projects. In my opinion, I think even if you did niche down, like let's say you transitioned all of your marketing material, you're changing your website, um, and you know, promo- any other promotional material is going to be focused around this specific niche, solving this solving this specific problem. You're still going to get people that are coming to you for other things, and you can have you know you can choose whether or not you want to work on those projects. Um, exactly. You're just going to get you're just going to get more uh, focused on that specific niche that you went into. But you're never going to it's just never going to happen where you're only ever going to get you know queries about that one type of work that you're doing. And so one tactic that I've learned from um, uh, Blair Enns, who's the founder of Win Without Pitching, it's a great sales mm. training company. Um, is that you can niche down. You don't have to throw the baby with the bathwater. You can easily, and that literally costs you, will cost you, say, a couple hundred bucks. You can print a bunch of business cards, register a new domain name, yeah. and start uh, a sister Landing company. Page. Yeah. And uh, and just say, okay, we're architects XYZ on this side, and we're generalists, and we do everything we've been doing ever since we existed. And then the new website is not related in any kind of overt way to the existing business. It's like, okay, we're testing the waters of designing the best coffee shops in the world. And our goal is to be hired by uh, people who want the best of the best, meaning all over the world. Because the thing is, um, I think one thing that people don't understand is that when you niche niche down, you don't want to niche down... um, too much in both geography and expertise you're either mm-hmm. going to pick a very pick a very narrow uh, geographical area and you're going to be uh, a more generalist practitioner in a very small area so like in your town you're going to be mm-hmm. the top architect in your town for everything people want yeah. or you're going to be the top coffee shop designer in the world worldwide meaning right. that no one can touch you in that particular typology, but you'd never want to do both. Because if you if you say, I'm only going to do coffee shop and you live in a 100,000 people town, guess what? You're not going to have a lot of projects. About three coffee shops, yeah. Yeah, you're going to have <laughs> a dozen or so. And then after that, it's over. And you're still going to compete with local architects. So um, that's one distinction, I think, that has to be made. But... Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting to to start to get into those details. So um, I think we've talked about a few of those, but maybe if there's more you want to add to it, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see firm making in firms making in terms of business development? Yeah, so one is like you know again not 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 tracking or measuring specific things, not not tracking or measuring budget on a consistent basis, not tracking or measuring pipeline on a consistent basis. You know, um, you need to measure it so that you can improve it. That's that's thing number one. Um, thing number two that I see on the business development side is no no defined sales flow, meaning they don't have a process in place um, when someone. When they're when they're meeting with a new potential client, like what does that look like? It's kind of like flying by the seat of your pants a little bit each time. 
You don't you don't know exactly how the conversation is going to go that first time. You don't know when or if you're going to write a proposal after that or if you're going to have another meeting. Um, I think it's really important to just, you know, define I'm going to have one discovery meeting with a client is going to be 30 minutes. I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about these things, try to understand what the pains are. I'm going to go back to the office. I'm going to write a proposal. I'm going to set up a second meeting and conversation with them to walk them through that proposal and, you know, reiterate the fact that I understand their challenges. You just need to define something so that you have some kind of repeatable process that you can then improve and iterate upon, you know, Mm -hmm. so that's just, again, just getting something into place so that you have a baseline of understanding. Um, So that's, that's another one. Poor communication. We've, we've already talked about that enough. Like you just, you have to improve those communication skills. Um, you have to learn about how to talk about money, how to talk about budget, how to talk about investments. Um, those uncomfortable conversations that you're having with your client are, I think, un- usually uncomfortable on both sides, right? And you can make them more comfortable just by understanding better ways of talking about them um, and discussing them with your client. Um, and the last one we already talked about too is just diversifying that pipeline, um, making sure that you. It's just like it's just like you do with your own investments, right? You want to diversify your investments. You don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. Um, you want to give your firm opportunities to grow in different ways, um, just by opening up and having inbound, having referral business, having outbound business as well. Yeah, and and I had a question that came to mind uh, or a comment a while back, and and you just brought that up again. A lot of small firms that I talk to solely rely on word of mouth mm-hmm. um, for to get projects. And by and large, it works. But can you tell us why that might not be such a great idea? Uh, well, word of mouth is a two-way street. That's I think that's that's one of the reasons it's not such a good idea. So you could be, um, and we've we've all had a client that we didn't enjoy working with and that didn't enjoy working with us. Um, and you just hope that that's not a vocal, you kind of just hope that that's not a vocal client. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and of course you might have more, you might have a lot of, you might have a good reputation around the town, but like one, you know, it, it, it's just a two way street. So you want to make sure that you're covering your basis on, on multiple levels um, just to make sure that you have um, if, if that word of mouth dries up for whatever reason, you have different, different ways of bringing in business as well, rather than restarting and having having that oh crap moment of, we don't have anything mm-hmm. coming up in a few months. And so a while back you mentioned cold calling and and I know that's probably the most terrifying prospect for most architects who have to do their own business development. Why do you think that's still a, a decent and effective tool in getting projects for work? I think it, cold calling is like a, it has a bad, it has a bad reputation. Um, as being like the kind of the telemarketer spam calls that you get. And I'm not talking about doing one of those. Mm-hmm. I'd actually more so call it kind of like a warm call. Like you're doing research, you're understanding. So maybe, you know, maybe you work, maybe you do residential work in your in your general like regional area. Um, you're doing research to understand, hey, what are the builders in this area that are typically, you know, doing residential projects? I might have a list of 10 of them. Um, they're do. I see that they've built projects that are similar to ones that I design um, and that I would like to get built. I'm going to call up those 10 offices or maybe those 10 people try to find, either I'm going to try to find that person on LinkedIn or I'm going to call up those 10 offices. And just, you don't, like, you don't have to have a, 
pitch ready or anything like that. It's really just like introducing yourself. Like, hey, I'm just, hey, this is Tyler Sumala. Um, I saw that you do building in my area. I just started a firm, you know, down the road. Um, and I'm just curious if I could come in and have a conversation and learn about, you know, th- the type of work that you're doing. Just something, you know, it's just like opening up the conversation and developing new relationships. Um, I did that when I started my little studio and you know, made like three or four relationships with builders in my area. Um, it turns out like none of them were happy with the architects that they were using. Um, so, you know, depending on the area, uh, that's, that's something that, that can really help. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so I think that's the end of the interview. I, we've covered a lot of ground and, uh, I asked all of, most of the questions I wanted to ask. Do you have any last words of wisdom for the audience, which is primarily architects and interior designers oh, cool. of, uh, of of any kind, really? Just something you want to add? Yeah, I think my last words of wisdom would be to um, find and understand the things um, that the people around you don't enjoy doing or aren't good at and mm-hmm. become an expert at, at those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll immediately increase your own personal value to the firm, um, and you'll also increase the firm's value as well. So That's incredible advice. Well, Tyler, I want to thank you very much for uh, your time and your um, your insights, and I think that was a very good conversation. Hopefully, it'll be as valuable to the audience as it, as it is to me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.